Hello, everyone. Welcome to Better Health While Aging, a podcast that gives you strategies and information about improving the health and well-being of older adults. We discuss common health problems that affect people over age 60, the best ways to prevent and manage those problems, and we also often address common concerns and dilemmas that come up with aging parents and other older loved ones, like what to do if you're worried about falls or safety or memory or even the quality of a senior's health care. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Kernison. I'm a practicing geriatrician, so that means I'm a medical doctor specialized in geriatrics, which is the art and science of modifying healthcare so that it works better for older people and for their families. In today's episode, I'm going to do something just a little bit different. I'm recording this episode in June 2017, and earlier this month, a remarkable doctor died at age 93. His name was Dr. Lawrence Weed, and my guess is that most of you will have never heard of him because he was not well-known to the general public. He was, however, well-known in certain circles of medicine because he was hugely influential in changing one aspect of how medicine is practiced, namely the way that doctors record their clinical notes and organize medical information. He basically invented what we call the SOAP note, S-O-A-P, which is a standard format that is often used to document a patient's visit, where the S stands for subjective, what the patient told you, the O stands for objective, what we the doctor observe on physical exam, the A stands for assessment, what we assess is going on, and the P stands for plan. But Dr. Weed's contribution to medical note-taking is actually not why I want to tell you about him. The reason why I want to talk about him in today's episode, which is in a way an homage to him, is that he was a very forceful and vocal critic of the fundamentals of how medicine is practiced. And namely, he was a huge proponent of getting patients much more involved in their own healthcare. And he had some other very serious fundamental criticisms about medicine that, one, I think are really well-founded. And two are a large part of why I do what I do today, namely maintaining better health while aging and maintaining the podcast. So I already had uh, my interest and ideas in providing useful information to the general public before I heard of Dr. Weed, but I did come across his most recent book a few years ago. It was called Medicine in Denial. It was published in 2011. And when I read it, I thought his critique of what was wrong with the way we practice medicine was really spot on. And so I want to tell you about his ideas, not only because I think he was right, but because I truly believe that healthcare will not improve until enough patients understand the current flaws of healthcare, the healthcare that we have today, and understand why those are there and start to request a better approach, or at least be aware that there are better approaches and gravitate towards those when it's possible. Now, I did get a chance to talk to Dr. Weed a few times, and uh, I briefly met him in 2013 when he was age 89. Because his book really deeply impressed me, at the time I read it in the spring of 2013, I wrote a three-part commentary for a healthcare blog. I'll post a link in the show notes if any of you want to take a look at it. And after I posted that commentary, Dr. Weed actually reached out to me by email to thank me for uh, writing about his book. And he lived in Vermont. He taught at the medical school, University of Vermont, for many, many decades. And he was nice enough to invite me to stop by for a visit when I found myself in New England that summer. 
Um, by the way, he looked fantastic at age 89, really energetic in conversation, walking around his rural property on his own. And although I hadn't been in close touch with him recently, apparently he was still quite engaged in his ideas about changing healthcare until the day before he died. For various reasons, I didn't have the opportunity to be in close touch with him these past few years, but his work, I think, is really a touchstone for physicians like me. So what I want to do in this episode is tell you more about his ideas, um, because I think these will actually help you understand how to get better health care for yourself and for your older loved ones. So specifically, I want to share with you Dr. Wheat's take um, or at least part of his take, he wrote a lot. He had a lot of ideas. But I want to share with you some of his ideas about what's fundamentally wrong with the practice of medicine, including what's wrong with doctors and the way they practice doctoring in particular. I want to tell you about how he envisioned the role of the patient in his or her own healthcare. And then I'm going to tell you a little bit about what he proposed as solutions to get us to better healthcare. Now, Unfortunately, even though he has been writing and speaking and advocating for these ideas since the 60s, really, most of his ideas and solutions were never widely adopted. But at the end of this episode, I'll still share some suggestions on what we can learn from his work and some suggestions to help you in today's healthcare environment get better care from your doctors. So Dr. Weed's work. So as I mentioned, he's best known for his work in reorganizing the way we document health information. But he didn't just think that the way we documented health information was a problem, although he thought it was a very serious problem. And actually, I'll post a link in the show notes, but there is a wonderful video, a movie from 1971 when he was delivering grand rounds at a medical school. So he was invited. Grand rounds is when a prominent doctor is invited to give a lecture to the medical residents and faculty and medical students who are at a medical school. So there is a video of Dr. Weed giving grand rounds in 1971 where he explains what's wrong with the way we document health information. And it's great. I highly recommend watching it for at least a little bit. You'll get a sense of his personality and style and why he was so sort of committed to addressing this. So that is what he was especially well known for in medicine. But he thought it wasn't just the way we document things that's a problem. He thought that our entire approach to medicine was deeply flawed and potentially quite dangerous. And most of all, he thought it was unfair to patients for at least two reasons. And the first is that patients often don't get optimal care from their doctors. And in a little bit, I'll tell you more about how I would define optimal care and how you might think of, of whether something is optimal care or not. But basically, Dr. Weed complained and all the available evidence suggests that he was right, that patients were often incorrectly diagnosed and incorrectly treated. And then a second major problem that Dr. Weed identified with our current approach to medicine is that it was all about doctors doing things to patients and taking care of them, whereas he felt that our job as clinicians should actually be to provide a reliable and consistent and transparent health system and that then we would guide patients to figuring out a treatment approach that works well for them. And he thought this was important both as a matter of principle, that healthcare be organized to serve the patient rather than the doctor, but he also recognized that from a very practical perspective, every patient is an individual and the specifics of their health problem will be particular to them. And when I say specifics, I mean, first of all, their preferences for what kind of treatments 
they might want to try because often there might be a drug treatment, but there might be another non-drug treatment or a different kind of drug that comes with different risks and benefits. And historically, the doctor just picks whatever they feel like using. And Dr. Weed correctly pointed out that it should be up to patients to choose among those since they're the ones who are going to live with it. And then he also noted that the way they experience a given treatment will be specific to them. And that's in large part because everybody's biology is a little bit different. So people's biology is a little bit different from person to person, but also the particulars of their life may be different from person to person. It might be possible for somebody to go to physical therapy three times a week, and for somebody else, because of their job or family responsibilities, it might not be possible. So he felt it was really important to involve patients in their care, not just because it's the right thing to do, but because they are ultimately the most knowledgeable person on um, their lives and the way they experience a treatment. And he was advocating for this back in the late 60s and the early 70s. And that is really long before, before most healthcare professionals had even thought to involve patients more in their, in their treatments. That's become a more common idea right now. But at the time, it was really, really exceptional. And I would say he was far, far ahead of his time. Now, let me go back to this concept of optimal healthcare. So what do I mean by this? Now, these... These are my ideas here, not particularly Dr. Weed's, although since we got along well, I, I assume he'd be mostly in agreement. But when I say that you want to get optimal health care from a clinician, what do I mean? Well, if you approach a doctor or another member of the healthcare system, usually you want assistance with a health concern. And usually after you explain your health concern and they examine you, and maybe examine your records, they will make some kind of recommendation, meaning they'll tell you to do this next. And that thing you do next might be related to further evaluation and workup, or it might be uh, related to treatment, or maybe a combination of the two. So the unfortunate truth of today's healthcare system is that often doctors won't provide you with an optimal medical recommendation the first time around. So if you've been listening to the podcast, you'll know that I often bring up health problems that are incorrectly assessed or treated by the average health provider. I mean, that's a, a particular problem in geriatrics and the health of older people. But even when it comes to conditions for younger people, there are lots and lots of things that are incorrectly or suboptimally managed. And we have lots of evidence of that whenever they sort of test doctors or send in test patients or look at what they're doing. We see that doctors are often not providing the optimal care or the optimal recommendation. So what would be an optimal recommendation? So to me, optimal medical care meets at a minimum these three criteria. First, it should be grounded in the most recent and best available medical knowledge. Now, our knowledge evolves, but just as we've sort of discovered in part through clinical trials that in the previous episode, which I believe was episode 41, we talked about asymptomatic bacteria, the fact that older people often have bacteria in their urine and it's not a UTI and that it shouldn't be treated in most cases with antibiotics because it doesn't improve outcomes. That is something we learn from our best available knowledge. That is something that maybe wasn't known 40 years ago, but is known right now. So an optimal recommendation is based on the latest best available knowledge about how a certain medical condition should be evaluated and treated. The second criteria for optimal care is that it should be adapted to your preferences and values. So 
For instance, take the treatment of mild to moderate depression. The best available knowledge on how to treat it suggests that, that it's equally reasonable to start with a medication, an antidepressant, as with psychotherapy, because both have been shown to work about equally well. And some studies do show that if you combine them, that's even better. But, you know, both are good. So in a perfect world, the clinician would know that and would actually offer the two choices to a patient. And then the course that they picked would be based in part on what the patient prefers. Some people will say they don't have time for psychotherapy and they would rather take a medication, but other people might say, well, you know, I'd prefer to not take a medication. Actually, I worry about medications. I want to be on fewer medications. And so ideally, the recommendation would be based on that patient's preferences and values. And then the third criteria is that the recommendation, um, because often we do need to make a specific recommendation to people and not just let them choose among options. But, but in the end, the recommendation that we make would be made after we had helped a patient consider the various options along with their risks and benefits. So if you're wondering what's the difference between the, the second and third criteria, uh, we should pick a treatment course that is generally in line with what patients have told us that they prefer how much risk uh, they prefer to undergo, what kinds of therapies they do or don't want, and for specific conditions where there are a few options, all of which are roughly uh, equivalent or maybe have trade-offs, we should discuss with the patient and help them choose among them. And unfortunately, that's not what happens most of the time. Most of the time, doctors are used to managing a condition a certain way, and that tends to be the treatment that they recommend to patients, whether that is still the treatment that is uh, recommended according to best practice guidelines that are relevant to that patient situations, and whether or not that's actually the type of treatment that the patient would prefer. In short, that is what I believe optimal medical care would look like. And right now, it is quite easy as a patient to not get that unless you, one, fall upon a really good healthcare provider, and or, or two, ask a lot of extra questions to make sure the provider is aware of your preferences and to inquire about alternatives. So why is it that most doctors don't practice this way? Dr. Weed was very insightful in identifying some of the foundational reasons why uh, medicine is often so far from being optimal. And he had a few other ideas to relate to what he considered optimal medicine, which I'm going to share with you in a moment. And then he had lots of ideas on how to correct this. So let me tell you now about Dr. Weed's perspective on what are the foundational problems in how doctors do their doctoring. So for him, one of the core problems was that we rely on individual physicians to use their brains and their judgment to do things that he thought were too important and too complicated for people to attempt on their own. And so namely, he pointed out that we rely on individual doctors uh, when a patient comes with a concern. We rely on the doctor deciding what questions to ask the patient, what to document in the record, how to connect the patient's information to the existing medical knowledge base, and what next steps to pursue. So the way he summarized this was to say that medicine was very dependent on the internal capacities, mental capacities of autonomous physicians on their personal knowledge, their intellect, their habits, and their judgment. And he hated this because he felt that this created a lot of disorder and idiosyncrasy in medical care because it was just 
based on how some doctor decided to do things. Now, Dr. Weed actually had a background as a bench scientist. I think he was a biochemist who had gone to medical school and I think had, you know, almost incidentally found himself practicing clinical medicine. So in basic science, people are usually very rigorous about doing their experiments carefully, documenting everything they do, documenting everything they find, and making it reproducible so that they can reproduce what they did and someone else can reproduce what they did. So when he went into clinical medicine, he found that to him, he felt like doctors were just willy-nilly doing whatever popped into their heads and barely writing things down. And he pointed out, and it's quite accurate, and unfortunately, it's still basically true today, that the same patient with a certain problem could go see, say, three different doctors, and that the doctors would all ask different questions and might make different diagnoses and propose different treatments, and then they would document you know, what they ask and what information they found and their thinking in very different ways. And so to him, this, uh, now doctors call this clinical judgment, but Dr. Weed considered this unacceptable human-generated variation in the practice of medicine, and he felt that this was, did not lead to good care, was unfair to patients, and also made it extremely difficult to audit doctors and see what they were doing and figure out if somebody wasn't practicing well or might need some, some uh, I guess, assistance in improving their care. But he didn't really blame doctors, per se, for this. He felt that this kind of variability was to be expected because he uh, knew that the human mind is uh, subject to cognitive biases and that even the brightest person just cannot keep all medical facts in their head, especially when research means that the body of available knowledge keeps rapidly, rapidly growing. So he didn't blame the doctors for being not well enough trained. He just thought it was a very silly idea to leave it up to doctors to decide when a patient walks in, which questions should be asked and how to sort of fit that information in with a possible diagnosis and treatment plan. So this is a quote from his book. He, uh, he said, any system of care that depends on the personal knowledge and analytic capabilities of physicians cannot be trusted. And again, he thought that the problem was not only uh, the way the doctors went about their work, but also that since they didn't do very good record keeping of their work, uh, the patient didn't have a good record of his or her medical findings, and that that made it difficult for subsequent doctors, or even for the patient, him or herself for that matter, to reliably build upon the efforts of that first initial medical encounter. So he concluded that a fundamental problem of medicine is that we have sort of severe pervasive disorder that we're not orderly in how we evaluate patients, we're not orderly in how we match their data to our existing knowledge base, and we're not orderly in how we document our clinical processes and data. Instead, we valorize the individual physician's intellect and autonomy. Physicians, understandably, are loath to give it up as well. And so we persist in organizing healthcare around the efforts of fallible physician minds and so he concluded that the profession of medicine is in terrible denial, and that was the title of his book, Medicine in Denial. Now, in a bit, I'll tell you what he proposed as a solution to this, but first I want to bring up you know, the other major problem, or one of the other major problems in medicine that he identified. I'm just mostly going to focus on two of these problems in today's episode. So one of the other major problems that he identified was how we envisioned the role of the patient, and that not only were we disorganized and idiosyncratic, but that we were also paternalistic, that in providing care, we 
as clinicians, we're consistently making choices based on our habits and preferences instead of on the patient's preferences, that we often kept patients in the dark as to details, in part because the details were barely recorded or very sloppily recorded, and also that we would assume that we could figure out the right treatment for them. Now, this last point is important, and I want you to really think about it because, among other things, I, over the years, have noticed that so often people come to me as a doctor or even just to ask me questions. You know, even when, when some people write comments on the website, they assume that I can tell them the answer to their health question and that I know what the right treatment is. But often I can't. Um, and that's for a few reasons. Often there's no obvious right treatment. I mean, first of all, online, there's just no way for me to know enough about the person to hazard a good guess. But, you know, fundamentally, it's often hard for doctors to know just what the right treatment is. But what we can do is help people identify a sound path forward for uh, moving forward and for exploring options. This is a big part of what I do as a geriatrician, in part because in geriatrics, there often aren't obvious answers. Now, sometimes in medicine, there are obvious answers. If somebody comes in after a car accident and they're bleeding, we know that the answer is to stop the bleeding and stabilize them and save their life. So in some cases, you know, uh, what we should do and what the goal of the care should be and what the patient probably wants the goal of the care should be are, are pretty clear. But in other cases, it's actually not very clear. And so I strongly feel that my job as a geriatrician and also when I was a primary care doctor in internal medicine was not so much to decide what to do. It was to clarify the available options to patients and help them understand the pros and cons of the available options and help them choose among it because there was no exact right answer and they should be involved in trying to pick one. And then an additional really important aspect of that was to follow along with them and help them assess how the treatment was going and whether it should be adjusted. So people think there's a right answer, but often there's not. Often there are a couple options. They come with their pros and cons. And what you need to do is decide on one, start with it, then reassess and figure out how to correct it. So that's a process that almost cannot be done without the patient's involvement. And and I have to say that people actually, sometimes I think they don't want to be involved because being involved is work, right? You know, it means that they have to keep track of things and and go back and forth. And there was actually a New Yorker article uh, just, I think, this past spring by Atul Gawande about some doctors at this headache clinic who were just doing, having amazing success. But when you read about it, part of it was just that they were really diligent about asking a lot of questions, documenting things, making a plan with the patient asking the patient to try something, asking the patient to track the symptoms, and then coming back together soon afterwards to look at it, reassess it, and correct the course. And that was really what Dr. Gawande was describing, was this just this process of intensively working together to figure out the right treatment for that specific patient. And this is something that Dr. Larry Weed, decades ago, was advocating for, this idea that it was crazy to think that we as doctors, in barely talking to the patient, could know it was the right thing to do because treatment ultimately was going to depend on the specifics of that person and that they had to be a big part of it. So when I read Dr. Weed's book several years ago, I was struck by the fact that for such a long time, he had been advocating for healthcare and the practice of medicine to be patient-centered in this way. And actually in 1975, 
he wrote a book called Your Healthcare and How to Manage It. And I want to share with you two quotes from the book. So first he wrote, the patient must have a copy of his own record. He must be involved with organizing and recording the variables so that the course of his own data on disease and treatment will slowly reveal to him what the best care for him should be. Also, he wrote, Our job is to give the patient the tools and responsibility to organize the knowledge and slowly learn to integrate it. This can be done with modern guidance tools. And again, this was written in 1975. And now, you know, here we are in 2017. And, you know, just last year, I recorded the podcast episode, episode 18, about high blood pressure treatment. And we are 40 years later, and I find myself still trying to convince lots of people that they should have a blood pressure cuff, uh, blood pressure monitor at home, and that they should be checking and bringing that information in to their doctors and using it to sort of see how their blood pressure medication is working out for them and figure out whether they need a correction or not. And as you can see, that's really different from what is still often the norm, which is that people get checked once in the office, get put on medication and are told, come back, you know, in three or six months and we'll decide what you should do. So again, Dr. Weed was really ahead of his time and a visionary in terms of involving patients in their own health care. Now, what did Dr. Weed propose as solutions? Um, so they are mostly laid out in his 2011 book, Medicine in Denial. You can get it as a paperback on Amazon. Um, it is a little dense and technical. I don't think it was intended for a general lay audience. I think it was more intended for people who work in healthcare and work in improving healthcare, but still in many ways a very good book. So what he suggested, and that book was co-written with his son, Lincoln Weed, who I believe is going to try to continue his uh, advocating for his father's ideas. But um, basically, in that book, the Weeds proposed a, quote, standardization of inputs. So they basically said we should have a really standardized, methodical way of collecting information from a patient at the beginning. So if somebody says, I have belly pain. We should have a kind of standard list of symptoms and questions that they're going to have to answer. And so you document it really well. So everybody who comes in with belly pain or a certain type of belly pain, the same kind of information is gathered from them and documented. And then we should use computers to sort of couple those symptoms to the knowledge base and generate some potential diagnoses or next steps. And then he thought that only at that point should doctors start using their clinical judgments, and that this should be applied to kind of uh, digest sort of uh, what's been generated from the methodical checking of symptoms and connecting it to information. At that point, the doctor uses clinical judgment and confers with the patient to decide on next steps together. And so in other words, he thought that medicine should be extremely standardized at the start and then end up in this very individualized process later on and pointed out that usually it's the opposite. It's extremely idiosyncratic and done any which way at the beginning. And then at the end, we have all these sort of like quality pathways where they say, and all your patients should be, you know, with this uh, type of disease should be on this kind of medication or have this kind of blood pressure. And, and he thought that was questionable. So a common complaint about this kind of standardization of, uh, of um, assessing symptoms and documenting them is that this is cookbook medicine, and physicians don't like that idea. 
Now, my own feeling is um, that since I've, you know, been observing for my own many years in medicine that the quality of the clinical work is often spotty and irregular, you know, I think a little cookbook structure wouldn't be a bad thing. And again, you know, the idea is for the cookbook, the recipe to give you a good foundation and not necessarily be the ending point. It should be the starting point. And from there, you build and individualize as necessary. Now, I think this idea of being very standardized at the beginning and then customizing afterwards is great. How it would actually be implemented uh, would be the question. We could certainly do it with you know, computers and questionnaires. Um, in my experience, people don't like filling out long questionnaires. Uh, they actually sort of prefer for the doctor to just ask them a few questions. But it's true that that's less consistent and reliable. And certainly if I were a patient, I would make the effort to do the long questionnaire because I know that's going to you know, potentially result in a better outcome. And some clinics have adopted you know, standard questionnaires for uh, certain types of conditions. And actually, if you're an older adult, finding a medical clinic, they're sometimes called senior clinics, that focus on primary care for older adults can be a really good idea because often they have implemented these sort of standardized questionnaires to help assess um, fall risk or memory problems. And that sort of standardization often allows doctors to do a better job than when you leave it just up to the doctor to remember to ask about all these relevant issues which they may or may not think to ask. So that was one of Dr. Weed's suggestions was be very standard and disciplined about how you ask about symptoms and then use some kind of knowledge coupler to couple it to the available knowledge base. Another solution he proposed was a medical documentation system called the Problem-Oriented Medical Record. In the 70s, Dr. Weed was pointing out that medical records often sort of contained information based on the source altogether. So all the x-ray reports would be together, all the labs would be together, all the doctor's notes would be together, all the nurse's notes would be together. And he thought it would be better to instead sort of identify specific medical problems that the patient had and chart based on those uh, continuously. I'm not going to get too much into the details of that. That's really for people who design electronic health records. But what I did find very insightful was that he based the rationale for this on some quite important observations about practicing medicine, which I want to share with you. And so here are some of the things that he pointed out. One, that managing chronic illness often involves multiple interventions. So that means multiple encounters with the clinicians um, or multiple treatment plans that may require adjustment over time rather than a single treatment that results in cure or resolution. So he's exactly right. When you're young or when you have a very specific problem, you can go to the doctor and hopefully they'll diagnose you correctly and offer you a treatment that's likely to work and it could be done. But especially later in life, people tend to have these chronic conditions that go on for a long time and often the health record is paradoxically not well suited to helping the doctor and patient collaborate over that problem over a long time. And so he felt that this was very important and that our electronic health records should be designed to help us do this tracking of uh, what he called variables. So that would be like your blood pressure, right? You're going to have high blood pressure probably the rest of your life and that it should be important to easily see when you're thinking about high blood pressure, the past blood pressures and when the medications were changed and why they were changed and that that should all be sort of more easy to see. And unfortunately, often it's still not that easy to see. He also noted that the chronic care of people who are medically complicated, especially the ones with multiple chronic conditions, requires coordination of care among multiple clinicians, multiple doctors at multiple sites. 
And so he felt that, again, for that, it was important to have a medical record that was really well organized that would facilitate that coordination of care. But as you may know, coordination of care remains often challenging in healthcare still. But he recognized very early on that this was an important issue. He also noted that for the many people who had multiple chronic conditions, that the chronic medical problems and their associated treatment would often interact. And so he felt that made it especially important that one, care be individualized to the specific person and that it be carefully tracked over time. Again, I couldn't agree uh, more. So, you know, one of the problems in healthcare is that often things are so sort of based on silos. It's almost designed as if every health problem is going to be treated in isolation. And uh, that's just so wrong. You know, people are not just a collection of their individual health problems added together. All their problems are interacting with each other. And you need doctors to both think about that big picture and you need a, a system of uh, recording the healthcare that facilitates that instead of making it harder. A uh, fourth point he made is that enabling the patient's awareness, participation, and commitment is essential. And, and he commented, and I quote, that unavoidable complexity must somehow be made manageable by patients who need to cope with what is happening to their own bodies and minds. So again, this was, I'm sad to say that I feel like this is still kind of radical and not widely accepted, but when people have multiple conditions and we give them lots of healthcare to manage, it's a big complicated endeavor that they have to live with every day. And so Dr. Weed strongly felt that, well, that's why they gotta be very involved from the get-go because they are the ones who are gonna have to manage that complexity. Dr. Weed also considered that psychosocial problems were significant and should be listed on the problem list and felt that you know, one should always uh, be aware of a patient profile that would describe the patient's family and living situation, noting that, quote, these data are essential for the practitioner to understand the patient's ability to cope with the medical problems and to work realistically with the patient in setting goals and planning for diagnosis and management. And Dr. Weed did often refer to an analogy he had for healthcare, which was an analogy to transportation. So, Ideally, what he proposed is that healthcare should provide an orderly, consistent, dependable, and transparent infrastructure through which patients could move as required by their medical needs and preferences and goals. And he said that this could be like a transportation system. And he pointed out that if travelers want to get somewhere, let's say they want to get from one country to, or from one side of the country to another side of the country, well, they might rely on expert service providers such as pilots or travel agents or mechanics, but the primary decision makers are still the travelers themselves. They choose the destination specifically. They choose the route. They choose the method of transit. And so he points out that two people who are driving across the country to get to the same destination might pick different routes depending on their preferences and needs, and no one would expect them to conform to one specific route that was the, quote, evidence-based best route as determined by experts. Now, I think if there is a best route, you know, like the one that takes the least time or has the least traffic or, you know, uses the least gas, I think one can certainly make the traveler aware of that. And then they may choose to pursue that or they may choose a different route because actually they really want to stop by some kind of national park on the way. So again, Dr. Weed's belief was that our healthcare system should be sort of orderly and transparent and that we should be helping patients navigate through it and encourage them to do as much of that 
on their own as possible and assist them as needed. So in short, Dr. Larry Weed, in my mind, was a radical and a visionary. Certainly at the time he started bringing up these ideas in the 60s and 70s, because decades ago, he was advocating for changes to make medicine more reliable, more effective, and most importantly, designed to enable patients to play an active role in their healthcare. He wanted us to use technology to enforce some discipline and consistency in the process of diagnosis and documentation and of identifying the most reasonable treatment plans. And then he wanted doctors to apply their judgment to connecting with patients and to helping patients choose among the possibilities and individualizing their care. And he wanted everybody to be very diligent about documenting what they were doing so that the patient would have a good record and could go to other doctors if necessary and could otherwise be supported in this journey of figuring out how to manage a longer-term health problem. So now, where are we? Well, over the past 10 to 20 years, we have seen some ideas related to Dr. Weed's work take hold. So on one hand, the healthcare quality and safety movement has encouraged more consistency in how we do our work. So we now have more recommended pathways for providing care. We have checklists to help doctors do things correctly instead of any which way they want. We have systems of clinical decision support embedded in electronic health records, and these can make suggestions to clinicians to nudge them towards care that's more in line with best practices and guidelines. And then in terms of involving patients in their own care, we've seen some progress there as well. It's becoming more common for patients to access their medical results or part of their medical record, There also have been a lot of efforts to make healthcare more patient-centered, quote-unquote, which can mean a lot of things, but basically means being more attuned to the needs and wants of patients instead of being mainly organized um, for the convenience of healthcare providers. There's also been a related movement to engage, quote-unquote, patients, which um, can mean anything from trying to get patients to do uh, more of what we think is good for them, like show up to their appointments or take their medications, But it can also be sort of generally trying to equip patients to take an active role in understanding and managing their health conditions, similar to what Dr. Weed was advocating for 40 years ago. And then there's also the idea of approaching medicine as a true partnership between patients and clinicians, which uh, is sometimes called participatory medicine. And we discussed those ideas in episode six, which featured e-patient Dave DeBroncart. So all of this is encouraging, but at the same time, it's sobering to see how far we still are in many ways from the healthcare system that Dr. Weed was envisioning decades ago. I mean, that problem that he described, where if the same patient goes to three doctors, he might end up with three different evaluation and treatment plans and nothing is documented quite the same. That is unfortunately still true of a lot of clinical visits, and I'm hoping to see it change within my lifetime but there are still a lot of obstacles in the way. So in the meantime, what does Dr. Weed's work mean for you and what can you do? How can you take advantage of these ideas? I would like to make a couple of suggestions. So first of all, I wanna encourage you to keep learning about health and healthcare and to aim to be a savvier participant when it comes to your health and the healthcare system. Honestly, it never fails to amaze me how people will be so much more diligent about doing a little homework and checking on things and keeping records when it comes to fixing their house or their car than when it comes to their health and their body. Somehow, when it comes to health, a lot of people will just go and trust the doctor and not even keep very good track of what the doctor said 
or um, did or what their medical results were. And I think that's unfortunate and that we would all be better off if we learn to be an organized or savvy patient. And that's not only because suboptimal care is common when it comes to the healthcare of older adults, which it certainly is, but also because as a matter of principle, it's your health and well-being. And as Dr. Weed pointed out over the years, you are the one who lives with your health, your health problems, and the consequences of whatever medical treatment plan is implemented. So you should be actively involved. And one approach that, or an analogy that I often think about is, is think about how you would be involved if you were going to hire someone to do an extensive renovation of your house. Most of us do not have the needed expertise to know how to redo our electricity, our plumbing, to set up a kitchen or a bathroom or all the other things that are done often when we renovate a house. So we hire a contractor and that contractor, usually the general contractor himself doesn't have the deep expertise to do those things. He's going to hire subcontractors who are each expert in that. But most of us would not just hire, first of all, we'd research the contractor before we hired him. But even then, after we, we hire someone who we've heard good things about, most of us do not just give him free reign and not supervise. We all sort of know that we should be involved and, and checking on things. Um, because most contractors are not crooks, but we know that sometimes, you know, mistakes will happen just because for them it's a job and they might be busy. And so we often are double checking things to make sure mistakes haven't happened. And also because we want things to work out to our own preference. If you don't tell them just where to put, you know, the light switches, they might end up in a place that's not that convenient, um, for you or even more serious changes, um, might happen. So most people are quite involved and on the ball when it comes to renovating their house. And that is the same approach that I would like to see people taking for their bodies and health because it's much the same thing. Nobody has as much of a stake in the outcome and in making sure that it turned out right or that all the options were explored because sometimes there's an option that might be better for you even though the contractor thinks the two options are the same. Uh, nobody has a stake in that the way you do. And so that is the approach that I would like to see more people taking to their health care. Otherwise, some specific things you can do. Choose your doctors carefully. Look for doctors who, one, are open to this idea that they don't know everything themselves in their own head. People who think they do, I would say that's hubris and that's a little bit dangerous. So a good doctor should be amenable when you bring in resources related to the best practices for your condition and shouldn't be too defensive and should be willing to involve you and help you select among alternatives. Another thing you can do is, for a given condition, try to do a little homework to learn more about what are the recommendations for how it should be evaluated and treated. Just to give a specific example, a few years ago, someone in my extended family reached out to me. She's my mom's age, and she was reaching out to me because her daughter, who was my age, you know, in her mid-30s at the time, had been diagnosed with osteoporosis. Now, osteoporosis is very common in older women, but unusual in younger women. And they had gone to see a doctor who had recommended this osteoporosis drug. And they sort of wanted to know what I thought. And what I said was, well, I don't take care of, uh, you know, young women. And I don't know anything about premenopausal osteoporosis. But since my family member was a retired nurse, I said, I'd be happy to give you the topic chapter on premenopausal osteoporosis. 
and we can learn about this together. And so, you know, what we found in looking at it is that actually there are some specific things that are supposed to be checked for when a woman has osteoporosis at this unusual early age. And the doctor had not checked for those things. And then there was research and evidence on how osteoporosis could be treated at that age. And the doctor hadn't discussed those different options and hadn't discussed the fact that the treatment he had recommended didn't actually have a great foundation in clinical research. And so all of this is things that they found out because they decided to go and do a little bit of their own extra homework. So I think it's worthwhile to do that extra homework if you have the time and energy, and I would encourage you to consider that. And then if you're in doubt, consider a second opinion for your care. Don't be afraid to, to ask about that. And then lastly, I want to encourage you to support changes that are in line with Dr. Weed's ideas regarding one more structure in how patient concerns are evaluated. And that might mean looking for clinics where they actually do use checklists and standardized questionnaires uh, instead of relying just on doctors to do what pops into their head. And then also support institutions or changes that make it easier for patients to be involved in overseeing their care. Support institutions that give patients more access to their records and encourage them to ask questions. Support policies at the legislative level that give patients the right to access that information because that's all part of making healthcare more transparent and uh, more advantageous to patients instead of being advantageous to doctors and hospitals and other providers. So in closing, I'll say that I'm really glad to have had the opportunity to meet Dr. Weed and that I'm very grateful to him for the work that he did and that I hope that we will see more implementation of his ideas over the coming years. If you would like to learn more about him, I highly recommend, again, watching that little video of him at Grand Rounds. And I will also link to his book and the commentary that I wrote about his book. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. If you have any questions about something you heard in the episode, you can post it on the show notes page for this episode. I'll also be posting some of the links to some of the resources that we mentioned in the episode. To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes. And if you've already done that, please leave a rating and review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show in iTunes. And I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.